This is Evidence-Based GI, and I'm Philip Schoenfeld, Editor-in-Chief. It's July 2023, and today we will be discussing the management of metabolic dysfunction-associated steatohepatitis, which previously we thought of as non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, with bariatric surgery versus lifestyle changes plus additional best medical care. Now, we're going to be reviewing the BRAVE study and specifically a summary done by our associate editor, Sonali Paul, and one of her GI fellows, Yichin Fu, from the University of Chicago School of Medicine. Their summary is entitled, Bariatric Surgery is Superior to Lifestyle Changes Plus Optimal Medical Care for Metabolic Dysfunction-Associated Steatohepatitis. And this is a summary reviewing a randomized control trial published in The Lancet in May of 2023. Welcome back, Dr. Paul. And as we always do, let's start by discussing why it's important for our listeners to understand optimal management of metabolic dysfunction-associated steatohepatitis, or what I think of as NASH, with bariatric surgery, as well as starting off with a little bit of discussion of the new nomenclature, which was just published within the last couple of weeks. Absolutely. So thanks for having me back. So in terms of the new nomenclature, I think there was a big push in the last few years to really stress that what we used to know as non-alcohol-related fatty liver disease is more than just being non-alcohol or not alcohol. It, it is really a metabolic-associated liver disease. And so the new nomenclature, it's it, the umbrella is under steatotic liver disease. And under steatotic liver disease, there's metabolic dysfunction-associated steatotic liver disease, or MASLD. And this is really formally known as NAFLD, as we used to call it. Um, and under that, there's um, the steatohepatitis is still a very important part of that. And so there's still metabolic dysfunction-associated steatohepatitis, or MASH. Um, and then the nomenclature further kind of distinguishes between alcohol and metabolic syndrome. And so folks can now have what we call MET. ALD, or metabolic and alcohol-related uh, liver disease. And then there's a cryptogenic and other etiology categories. But really, the focus is really on this being a metabolic disease. And if I can just interrupt there for a moment. So now, instead of NASH, we have MASH, M-A-S-H, and that's, again, metabolic dysfunction-associated steatohepatitis. And instead, now we have MASLD, M-A-S-L-D instead of NAFLD, and that's for metabolic dysfunction-associated steatohepatitis disease. And the goal here is just to really make physicians aware that this steatohepatitis is another manifestation of metabolic disorder, which leads to type 2 diabetes and obesity. Yes, that's exactly it. And so really recognizing not only the liver complications, but um, also in folks that have diabetes and things like that. So I think we've all known that fatty liver disease is really a metabolic consequence and part of metabolic syndrome. I think this really hones it in and, and compartmentalizes that. Can you tell us a little bit more about the scope of this problem? How many people have massled? 
what proportion of them are going to develop cirrhosis and, and what do we currently have that's FDA approved? Yeah, so as we all know, we see mast cell or fatty liver in our clinics all the time. So about 30% of the population has mast cell and it's projected that 30 million people will have MASH in the U.S. by 2030. So a lot, a lot of people. For every 100 people that get diagnosed, about five will have cirrhosis and some complication from cirrhosis. So five out of 100, but if you think of 30 million people, it's definitely a lot of people. And so clearly we need treatments that not only help the liver aspect of it, but also the metabolic components like diabetes and hypertension and high cholesterol. And as we all know, that there are actually no currently effective FDA-approved treatments for MASLD, but there are many, many um, coming down the pipeline that are investigation are investigative right now. And so the study that you summarized in the July 2023 issue of Evidence-Based GI, the BRAVES study, was the first RCT that directly compared RUNY bariatric surgery versus surgical sleeve gastrectomy, not endoscopic sleeve gastrectomy, versus what the investigators called optimal medical therapy, which meant that the patients got vitamin E supplements plus pioglitazone and low-dose liraglutide if they also had type 2 diabetes mellitus, but only the patients in that optimal medical care group got the vitamin E supplements and the increased focus on treating their type 2 diabetes mellitus, all three groups got lifestyle modification, counseling in terms of diet and exercise. And the question was, would the bariatric surgery be better than this optimal medical care at producing histologic resolution of the metabolic dysfunction associated steatohepatitis or MASH. And so this was an open label RCT that was conducted over the course of 52 weeks of follow up in three centers in Rome. Individuals were aged 25 to 70 years old with obesity, meaning a body mass index of greater than 30 with or without type two diabetes. And they had to have histologically confirmed metabolic dysfunction-associated steatohepatitis, or MAN. And they were randomized one-to-one-to-one to surgical RUNY or surgical sleeve gastrectomy or optimal medical care with vitamin E supplements plus additional pioglutazone or low-dose liraglutide if they also had diabetes mellitus type 2. And then patients were followed up at 52 weeks to see if they had had histologic resolution of MASH without worsening a fibrosis. And the main secondary outcome was getting improvement by at least one stage of their MASH fibrosis score. Now, there were intention to treat and per protocol analyses of the 288 adults who were randomized. I'd note in particular that the study participants were 100% white. This was a study conducted in Italy, and that most patients had fairly low fibrosis scores. 88% were F1 or F2, only about 11% had F3 fibrosis. 
But the bottom line results are that the surgical RUNY or surgical sleeve gastrectomy were much superior for producing resolution of histologic mash, 56% and 57% with the two surgical arms versus only 16% resolution of mash in the medical care arm, and that for improvement of fibrosis, Again, significantly better in both surgical arms, 37% and 39% of surgical patients had improvement of fibrosis by at least one stage versus only 23% of the patients in the medical care arm. This certainly suggests that effective interventions to produced weight loss are beneficial for resolution of steatohepatitis and even improvement of fibrosis, although there's no FDA-approved treatment right now. You're the expert at this, Dr. Paul. What do you do in your own clinic where you have a big mass old population <laughs> who also have concurrent obesity and type 2 diabetes, recognizing this study really doesn't tell us much about medical treatment for obesity with semaglutide or terzepatide, which are, are certainly hot topics among both the public as well as the medical community? No, absolutely. So in, in terms of my practice, when I see patients with mass older mash, um, one of the biggest things that you know we that we talk about is how can we help you lose weight? And because we know that if folks lose weight, the mass old and mash can regress. And sometimes even with 10% decrease in body weight, fibrosis can regress. And so I am obesity medicine certified. And so I do use the GLP-1 receptor agonist, as you mentioned, smaglutide and trisepatide, which also has another insulin component as well. But And I do also refer some patients, select patients, to bariatric surgery. I think my practice has changed a little bit as before. If anyone had a BMI greater than 40, although the guidelines have changed now, so it's BMI greater than 35 or BMI greater than 30 with some metabolic comorbidity actually qualifies for bariatric surgery. I used to wait until they, if their BMI was greater than 40, I would send them straight away. I do think these new set of weight loss medications have really changed my attitude towards this. I do think that folks that can take semaglutide or trisepatide Trisepatide currently is not FDA approved the, for weight loss. It's currently only approved for diabetes, but some folks do use it off-label. And the weight loss is phenomenal, you know, 15 to 25, 30% body weight loss. And so sometimes as uh, similar to gastric sleep. And so, you know, I try and start with medications. Unfortunately, these medications are very highly regulated by insurance companies. It's very difficult to get these medications, not only from insurance standpoints, but there's also kind of national shortages because they're so popular and because they're so effective. And so for some folks, if I'm truly worried about them, that, you know, they're young, they have bad mash with every single comorbidity, I will be a little bit more aggressive and ask them to go see, at least talk to the bariatric surgeons and see what they think if, you know, we can't do semaglutide or trisepatide up front. Also saying that, you know, after the surgery, you could also potentially consider it if you still need extra weight loss. I'm curious at your own center. Do you send a lot of patients for sleep endoscopic sleeve gastrectomy? So we don't. We've we've had some patients get it from just investigative purposes, but the limiting factor is really insurance again. And so a lot of the patients that have gotten it have had to pay out of pocket. And for me, I would much rather have them pay out of pocket. If they're going to pay out of pocket, I think having them pay out of pocket for semaglutide or trisepatide is much more favorable to me if insurance won't cover it. Um, if insurance covers it, absolutely. But I think for me, you know, the medications, I think, are the way to go, which isn't you know, surprising. I'm a person who gives out a lot of medication. 
I think some progress has been made with getting better insurance coverage for endoscopic sleeve gastrectomy, and hopefully much better improvement will happen in the future. You know, what other kind of studies do we need? Based on our previous conversations, it sounds like we should have studies that have a higher proportion of patients with, say, F3 fibrosis who are at greater risk for developing, you know, symptomatic cirrhosis or, or decompensated cirrhosis, as well as having studies that maybe head-to-head look at some of the anti-obesity medicines versus surgical or endoscopic interventions in MASH patients. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? No, absolutely. I mean, I think to your second point, this study actually, the, the opt, quote unquote, what the authors called optimal care, everyone got vitamin E, which we sometimes use for, for MASH. But if you had diabetes, you got pioglitazone and loraglutide, but a lower dose loraglutide that we would only use for the treatment of diabetes. The higher dose is actually used for obesity. And so while I do love bariatric surgery, I don't know if the study is going to p- p- propel me to use that as first line if I can get the medications approved. What I'd like to see is the semaglutide or trisepatide compared to bariatric surgery in the treatment of MASH. That would be, I think, a very interesting study. And then the second point of just we need more data in folks that have F3 fibrosis because these are the folks that are the most at risk for advancing to cirrhosis and then decompensation, as you pointed out. And this study only had about 11% of patients with F3. Well, thanks again for joining me today. Please remember to subscribe to Evidence-Based GI on your favorite podcast platform. And also, please follow us on Twitter at ACG underscore EBGI. Thanks again for joining us today. Thanks so much.